And we're back with more of the program. Uh, Bob Metz is with us. Uh, Jeff Schlemmer is with us. Uh, welcome, gentlemen, to both of you. Morning, Morning Jim. Um, today's program, I want to take a look at the Banditos. Now, we don't normally, you know, we're not into sensationalism here. But the Banditos trial is underway. And there's, uh, there's been a great effort to have the warrants unsealed. The warrants, I guess, are sealed and we're not supposed to know what they contain or what the charge. Maybe we can get Jeff, who's a lawyer, maybe he can explain a little more about what that means to seal them. But um, I want to talk a little bit about the, the, the whys of that. But, but can I ask you first, Jeff, what can you tell us about sealing the warrants in a case like that? What, what might the warrants contain and, and, and why might they want to seal them? Uh, well, uh, with the caveat that I'm not a criminal lawyer and I haven't really followed that that trial much, uh, the the general kind of rule would be if there's some reason that it's going to prejudice somebody, then that's when they seal them. Otherwise, uh, the the principle in criminal law nowadays is is full disclosure. That um, there was a case uh, from the Supreme Court of Canada a number of years ago called Stinchcomb, where the court said that uh, unless there was a very good reason, a very good reason to keep some part of the Crown's case and the police investigation secret, that fairness to the accused dictated that they should know um, everything that that the police have against them. And uh, part of the reason for that was that, for instance, it used to be the case that the police would have their investigation, they would gather all kinds of evidence, but they would only disclose the evidence that went against the accused. So, for instance, if they interviewed uh, two people and one person said, yeah, I saw them do the thing, and they interviewed another person who said, well, they couldn't have done it because they were off in uh, Chicago with me, uh, the police wouldn't disclose the second interview. And so there could be uh, lots of evidence that the police have that uh, would tend to exonerate the accused, and the accused would never find out about it. So the Supreme Court candidate just said, yeah, that's kind of games playing. You know, what we're really about is trying to get to the bottom of things, and so the police and the Crown should... Uh, should tell the defense everything that they have, the good and the bad. But there are some exceptions, and probably the most prominent one would be for uh, anonymous informants. So if you've got somebody who uh, is uh, somebody who blew the whistle on somebody, and I gather it's still a lot of um, a lot of police work still involves. Um, Human intel, mm-hmm. you know, the old uh, somebody snitches on somebody, mm-hmm. uh, in spite of you know Miami CSI and all that stuff. That uh, it's still uh, largely somebody decides to to tell something that uh, that uh, the person who ends up being charged uh, didn't want told. And if it's somebody again who's in a position where there's there's good reason why they want to keep themselves anonymous so they don't get killed, for example, mm-hmm. then that's the kind of circumstance where uh, things can um, can be sealed and uh, a judge can order that that stuff not be disclosed, the names not be disclosed, or even information that might tend to uh, identify who that person is, even though it's not the name, but it's something that well. Only so-and-so would have known such and such. I'm not a fan of speculation generally, but uh, educated guess is just the one step beyond speculation. Could we make an educated guess here, um, given what you've said, that the principle, the the general principle is that you do disclose. Could we make an educated guess that there are some informants involved in this who might... does that seem like a reasonable hypothesis yep. for why now they the, would keep it sealed? Yes. Now, there are other possibilities, too. For instance, sometimes the uh, police have an ongoing investigation. For instance, they may have an undercover officer, for example, uh, who is continuing an investigation on this or another matter, and it may be that if the information is disclosed, it would essentially blow their cover and require them to leave. Uh, so that may be another reason why the police may not disclose something. They're not... It is... The law recognizes that uh, the, the police have an ongoing role in gathering evidence and that uh, that shouldn't be prejudiced by the um, 
by the fairness aspect of saying, well, here's what we've got. Uh, that That is, in the real world, we recognize it's not practical to say everything you've got uh, if, you've, if you're still doing stuff. But this, am I confused here? Because my understanding was that the, that the accused know what the police have. They just don't want the public to know. Am I, am I wrong in that? Well, that's another issue that sometimes arises. And usually if, if there's a, that's usually in the nature of what's called publication ban, um, and that can arise, again, in some cases uh, where probably the most um, conventional case we see is that uh, nowadays we don't disclose the names of victims of crime or of children often where to do so would cause more harm to the victim. Uh, so, for instance, if you're the victim of a, of a, of a rape, for example, uh, sexual assault, as we call it now, uh, it may be that your name won't be disclosed. You may be known as Jane Doe for example. Uh, and the reason for that is because of sensitivity to not wanting to continually re-injure the victim. Uh, and on the, the issue around the issue of public disclosure, the thinking is that courts stay most honest when they are required to account to the public. And that's why even though um, sometimes there will be publication bans for trials, but you're still free to go and watch it if you want, to go down to the courthouse and, and mm-hmm. sit in and watch. Um, so the the uh, there are considerations like as they say the main one being we don't want to make things worse for the people who've already been hurt by a crime. Uh, sometimes there are other factors around things like, for instance, uh, before a jury is chosen, you may want to limit the amount of information in the media because they don't want juries to be quote tainted by uh, by speculation in the media or by reports. Not so much speculation because that's not necessarily a problem, but if if rumor is reported as fact, for instance, and people get ideas that this person is guilty before they uh, ever walk into the courtroom, that will tend to make a jury trial hard. Or, for example, they may um, learn things about the person which they consider to be evidence that they're an unsavory person, which could then taint their ability to assess, well, objectively, based on the evidence that's in front of them in this particular trial, did they do it or didn't they do it? Um, Usually we try to limit things that over the years, the courts have decided get in the way of that. For instance, if we're if if we think somebody's a real jerk, for instance, a real uh, say unsavory person, we will be less um, inclined to believe them about things. Uh, there's, a, there's a rule that I've often kind of wondered about um, about uh, similar fact evidence that uh, if a person has done a particular thing before and has a history of doing it, that's considered to be irrelevant to whether they likely did it this time or not. So you're not supposed to lead evidence about the fact that they've been doing this their whole lives or whatever. I've always thought that's kind of odd because I think that most of us would think a person who's done it before probably is more likely to have done it again. Well, statistically, they probably are, are they not? Yeah, but there's a body of case law where where judges have said, uh, have been persuaded over the years, and it goes back for for at least half a century, probably more, that that's not fair. That uh, I think what they, I think they made a big mistake because the proper time to use that character protection is when you're dealing with a case of rape, where it doesn't matter that a woman was sexually active previous mm-hmm. to a rape. That doesn't affect the crime that was committed against yeah. her. But in the case where a person is constantly shooting people or constantly uh, you know, violating people's rights, I think character should be taken into account in that case. Not certainly when it's the victim, and you know it's a well, clear it's, crime. it's always, it's always. I've always found it a little interesting that that uh, as I understand how this works, that if you have uh, uh, been uh, convicted or or perhaps not even been convicted yet, but but the the defense can bring in people to attest to your good character, but the the, uh, the prosecution cannot attest to your bad character, uh, absent this particular 
case that's before them. I never entirely understood why it was okay one way, but not okay the other. Well, and it depends when you do it, too, that uh, during the trial, the issue is, did you do it or did you not do it? And so mm. you, it's conceivable that uh, a defense lawyer might be able to introduce some evidence of, uh, again, um, this person is an upstanding member of the community who wouldn't likely do such a bad thing. But most of that evidence actually comes after the conviction on the issue of sentencing and the question of whether of how severe a sentence they should get. And in that one, th- in that case, at that point, the criminal record does come in. So all the evidence about having done stuff in the past or a repeat offender, that does become relevant and uh, will, will result in a much higher sentence. Uh, on, this, uh, on the other hand, again, that's when a person can have all their friends come in and testify that, that uh, they're a good person. You, I, you may recall there was a case, I remember what it was, um, last year, I believe it a politician or a businessman who was con- convicted of a fairly significant... Oh, it was a lawyer. who was convicted of a fairly significant fraud in Toronto, and one of his character witnesses was Julian Fantino. And, and so my brows were raised about whether it was appropriate for uh, the Commissioner of Public Security, as he was then, to be coming in on a case where a guy's just been convicted of a big fraud mm-hmm. to say, hey, he's a good guy, you know, you should go light on him. Um, it's a bit odd, and particularly knowing Julian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was very, like, I was shocked when I saw that he had done this. I said, holy cow, uh, this guy must be a saint. Uh, and, uh, and if so, how did he do this big fraud? I don't know. Uh, but that is considered fair game. And uh, having said that, there are those who argue that that leads to uh, a two-tier justice system in the sense that if you're a person who has a lot of powerful friends who will come into a courtroom and say, oh, there's a great guy, pillar of the community, blah, 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 you will get a lighter, lighter sentence than if you don't happen to have those friends and you did exactly the same thing, you're getting a bigger punishment. Jeff Schlemmer, Bob Metz with us today on Left, Right, and Center. Good to have you with us, too, on the program. The uh, One of the... the pieces of speculation about this relative to the Bandito's case is that they don't want, uh, because it's their, I understand it's the defendant's lawyers who are trying to ensure that these things are not open to the public. They're concerned about getting a fair trial. Um, Somebody said something interesting to me the other day about this. Was Well, these guys are self-proclaimed outlaws, and uh, although not in any specific sense, are self-proclaimed criminals by their very... Uh, membership in an organization like this that is that is by definition a criminal organization surely they cannot then expect after having publicly worn the colors been a member of this group professed the things that these groups profess that it's not reasonable for them to then expect that none of that should count for anything none of that should be allowed to taint the jury pool or perhaps influence jurors against them does that does that make any sense to you Bob well to a point, yeah. I, th- I think membership in a group doesn't necessarily implicate you in a specific guilt with, the, you know, respect to a specific act or action. Um, and I think that's what the courts are trying to separate there, because you could, if you smear the brush too wide over everybody, you might be getting the wrong people and letting the right people go, or backwards. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, letting the guilty go and 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 prosecuting some of the quote innocent end quote. <laughs> we all know what that means, okay? But uh, you know, when you look at what drives a whole culture of bikers and everything, it's it's these ridiculous laws we have. And, and I mean, the whole system feeds on itself. And I, I have to tell you, when I hear about uh, warrants being sealed and stuff, you know, I hear all of the, uh, you know, conspiracy people come out right away and they go, oh, corruption, they didn't do something right, the police screwed up, you know, uh, they're hiding something, they don't want us to know something. Uh, um that could be true too. We we do all those things that Jeff said could be true, and there could be a bit of both. You know, we don't know. But when you're dealing in a in an industry where there's such 
competition between government and cr crime to to control vice because <laughs> they are let's face it the Ontario government's controlling casinos controls alcohol controls tobacco and would love to control marijuana except it's uncontrollable so that's the only reason they haven't got around to that one yet and uh, I mean and, and they're having a big problem with prescription drugs too which I understand now are as much a part of the downtown gun shooting scene as as the supposed illegal drugs are, okay? So you've got these controlled markets where everybody's fighting for control. Same thing's happening on a world scale. Uh, that's what we see in Afghanistan and Iraq, Iran. They're all, guess what they're all fighting about? Drugs and basic drug industry. All caused and made valuable by the fact that there is a drug war. And so, um, you know, the consequences are natural that you're going to have these kind of things happen. But would these guys, uh, mm -hmm. and come back to the bikers again, if mm -hmm. we go back to the early days, the Hells Angels, for example, mm -hmm. there were drugs involved, yeah. but their thing was we're the one percenters, we're the guys who don't fit in, we're the guys sure. who, who don't care about the law and we'll do what we want and so on. Uh, so th that mindset was around before the, you know, before this drug culture. Uh, oh, yes, there's uh, always that percentage. I remember when I was a kid, I don't know if you remember, the big thing then was riots at Grand Bend with yes. the bikers, and the, mm -hmm. and the big drug then was alcohol, mm -hmm. and, and the police had a real problem with alcohol. And uh, But again, I actually knew a guy who was, who was a biker when I was a little kid. He, he was you know, 20 years older than me, but I know he was, and he seemed like a really nice guy, you know, mm -hmm. to the kids, right? Wasn't the kind of guy that would hurt anybody. I remember bikers, uh, I used to live uh, on Rectory Street, so I'm an EOA kid, <laughs> you know, and they had a big wedding down there at Dundas Street, and uh, I forget what the church was, but it was biker wedding, cops all over the place, mm -hmm. but a very peaceful event, and mm -hmm. I'm telling you, people came around to watch this thing, I guess just like they do on the Friday the 13th event uh, every, what is that town that fills up with it's bikers? Port Dover. Port yeah. Dover, yeah. But yeah. it's not, it's not like but, but it's not, bikers, no. it's motorcycle guys. But there's all kinds of people there, yeah. and the police are on the watch, and they're always telling yeah. you, you know. So uh, you, you see these overlappings of culture, and of course there are bikers who aren't in any way uh, involved in any kind of criminal There's activity. a lot of guys just exactly like Jeff here who yep. are riding bikes oh, these yeah. days. You know, these middle-aged lawyer types with lots of money. And, oh, yeah. Uh, well, i got a friend who's got a Harley. He zooms down the 401. Yeah, yeah. And Reliving he's, he's their care for youth. Yeah. Well, I still have my, uh, my uh, motorcycle license, but I've been on a motorcycle for 20 years. <laughs> Not planning to anytime soon. But it does remind me, as Bob was saying, that uh, in some respects... Uh, and inevitably, you hear this when the uh, when bikers are charged with things that uh, you know they're they're not that, that it's all image that it's they're, they're not really bad and uh, that they're in some respects it's uh, it's a self um, created image and a self perpetuated image because they want to be rebels without a cause. But on the other hand, a lot of them are nice people; they do nice things and so on. And it always reminds me of my my girlfriend. One of her favorite uh, movies is the Godfather series, and I've always said it's a movie about. Bad people. I, I can't get into this. She's no. It's, but it's a good movie about, it's about bad people. Family and loyalty. And all. No, I said it's about the mafia. They're bad. And she said no. They're not bad in this. You know, they look out for each other and all that stuff. It's like well, that may be, but I can't go over the fact that they're the freaking mafia. <laughs> We're going to pause for a second. We'll come back with more on left, right, and center with Bob Metz and Jeff Schlemmer. We're back with uh, Bob Metz, Jeff Schlemmer today on Left, Right, and Center. I said something earlier today, and I just want to get your reading on it, both of you. That, uh, and I don't know if you saw my column on the weekend, but I wrote about home invasions, and I said I think that in, they need to be declared a, a separate crime, a distinct standalone crime, and there should be extremely serious uh, penalties for them. And I talked about you know, the people who say, well, harsh penalties don't deter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And my response was, well, if, if penalties don't deter, then why do we have them at all? They must do something, or criminals will do whatever they wanted all the time. So I believe that penalties do have some deterrence. But then we did a story this morning about running a red light in the city of London. It costs you 180 bucks if they catch you. 
180 bucks to do something that potentially has the potential to kill multiple people. Um, and, and the people are, too many people are doing it now. And I suggested that maybe the fine should be $5,000. Not that I want anybody to pay it. Ideally, nobody would ever pay it. But it seems to me that one of the problems we have with crime in our society is we have trouble getting the attention of the, of the, of the criminals or the perpetrators. And maybe you're not a criminal if you run a red light. I don't know if that's the right terminology, but we don't seem to be able to get people's attention to remind them that you should not be doing that. And it just seems to me that if we you know, had a big public relations campaign so everybody knew about it, nobody could plead ignorance. Say, so, you know, as of the first of the year of 2008, you run a red light, it's going to cost you five grand if we catch you. And oh, by the way, we're going to be looking for you too. I can't help but think that the number of people who would contemplate that behavior would probably shrink drastically. Bob, what's your, what's your take on, on that kind of punishment for things that we all agree we ought not do, but right now the, the only two restrictions are your own sense of civic duty. Well, I shouldn't run a red light. And what if I do and I get caught, it costs me 180 bucks. Um, I, I, get, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that you want to single out certain acts, even, even if they're heinous acts, you know, like a home invasion versus uh, maybe what Carla Homolka and... and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, Paul Bernardo did. I, I, they weren't exactly home invasions, but I would put them in the same category well, so and do the same thing yeah. to the people if I, yeah. if it were up to me. So uh, I don't know that I could really distinguish on that basis. But do 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 penalties really uh, <laughs> increase or decrease crime rates? Depends. You know, we found we have found, for example, in New York State and other states where they uh, increased penalties on drug possession. They had the death penalty for heroin possession at one time, and they found out <laughs> it went the other way, and mm-hmm. the deaths of police officers went up because if you had nothing to lose, mm-hmm. you were going to fight to the end. You know, mm-hmm. um, so there's that psychology. I, I think when you're dealing with crime in general. I think we're going about it wrong because fining people is just like taxing them. I mean, we tax people for doing good, too. And we get, you get more penalized by the government for doing good and being productive than you ever will for any crime. You're, they take half of your life away right now, and you're not committing a crime. Mm-hmm. So that's why so often when criminals pay fines, they just see it as a cost of business, okay, if you're talking about organized crime. And yep. it's a cheap tax, too. It's one time. You only, it's only every time you get caught, whereas if you're working, you get caught every day. So, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons I don't believe in income tax or in property tax. I don't think people should be fined for, for doing virtuous things. I think they should only be penalized for doing bad things, you know. But uh, that's a whole other issue. Um, I guess there's a percentage of people who might be otherwise um, persuaded to not do something because they're aware of some fine. But I'm uh, kind of worried about the poor guy that goes through the red light by accident and then gets nailed for 5000 bucks and has no way of proving his innocence. Uh, maybe he had a reason to go through. Maybe it was a safer thing to do at the moment. Maybe the light was frozen at 3 o'clock in the morning. And he had, I've done that before. But isn't that, I mean, that's a yeah. danger That's a danger sure. with any law that we have, that mm. there may occasionally be some kind of miscarriage of justice. Yeah, I'm, I'm concerned with abuse, I guess, is yeah. my concern. But, you know... If, if it worked, I'd say go for it. I just don't know that we have that much evidence for it. Maybe Jeff knows more in the legal profession. I don't know. You well, see you, much of that, Jeff? Um, well, those are things that, that are that, that are considered. And I, I was just thinking of the example. And before I do this, let me just talk about home invasions for just briefly sure. for a second. That, that the thing about home invasions to me is that every the first thing I look for when I read a story about a home invasion is was it somebody that the that the occupant of the home knew or not? And mm-hmm. almost invariably, it's someone they did know. And my worry is almost invariably. 
invariably, but not invariably. Yeah. And that's what I'm concerned because the yeah. cops the cops tell us that a lot of these crimes are drug related and a lot of them are as you say, they, the people know each other. I'm concerned about the ones where they don't. Yeah, and but my my uh, concern around this is that I wouldn't want people to think that their home is really at risk that uh, people are going to come bursting in with guns uh, who they don't know. And uh, again, the vast bulk of these stories, again, it, what's happened is that people who know each other, uh, the one has robbed the other. And I don't know that you need a separate crime for that. But I, I hear what you're saying, that if it is a genuine invasion, genuinely somebody has targeted a home randomly, in the rare case that that occurs, should it be treated more severely? I, I think, yes, it should. Having said that, I'm th- I was thinking about drunk driving as an example of where behaviors have changed dramatically in la- the last 20 years. Part of it is that uh, punishments have gone up substantially. But I think a huge part of it as well is that public attitudes have changed. And they, they've changed through uh, campaigns. They've changed through uh, very effective work. By but I'll tell you what the public attitude is towards home invasions from the response I've got from this column I said yesterday. I've got more response from this than anything I've written in years. Overwhelmingly, people saying, way to go, way to go. It's time somebody stood up and said that. We're frightened to death of this. We don't want this to happen to us. And, and people who do this should be locked up and the key thrown away. But that's fine. But what those people also need to know is that the chances of it happening are about the same as the chance of being hit by lightning. So I, my worry is when they see these big headlines yesterday or this well, past week, but not in the states. There are jurisdictions in the states where this is the, this kind of crime has become rampant. And that's what I'm concerned well, about. How do we keep it from becoming rampant here? I'd say we stay the way we are and don't be like the states. But that's a whole other debate. But again, or worse, I really don't become like some of the South American com- countries where kidnapping is the in, cra- in thing to do yeah, right I, now. I really, I really worry, and I feel for people who think that there's a that there's a wave of this going on when there isn't. You know, and that's that's too bad, I think, and that's a way that the media does leave well, the impression it's not, not why, accurate. Why would you say that there isn't? There have been there have been two instances here just in the last few weeks that have made the papers. I've heard well, from people who've who've claimed to have had the same thing happen to them, but their stories have not been in the papers for a variety of reasons. They didn't want them in there. They whatever, whatever. How do we know how much of this is happening? Well, but in these cases, the problem is these are people who are known to the people who, who got robbed. You know, that they let somebody in who they shouldn't have let in who was a bad friend. Well, not I the think. fellow who emailed me yesterday, day before yesterday. Well, for what's been in the paper, that's what's the story. And the first, that's the first thing I look at. Then yesterday it was in Markham, you know, or the weekend it was Markham. Markham, two, two people shot dead in a suburban house. But inevitably the next day you find out it's the estranged husband. And people, and, and as you know, this is something that, uh, that we used to talk about a lot on the police board, People are far, far more likely to be hurt by people they know than people they don't know. Mm-hmm. The, the random crime in Canada is is very low. Uh, compared Always to the has pers- been the case. Compared to the percentage of, of people who you do know and, and have lived with your whole life who are going to kill you or rob you or do something mm-hmm. bad to you. And I worry because I, I see seniors particularly, people who feel that they're vulnerable, thinking, geez, you know, I, I locked my door and somebody's just going to go barging through it. And, and, and But isn't there, is, but there's, there's a flip side to that too, though. If it is relatively rare, and if our seniors who are worried about this, who tend to be the ones who are most worried, uh, if they are worried, what's wrong with saying to the seniors, well, we're going to enact or we have enacted some legislation that will further limit the possibility of this happen. We are going yeah. to send the message very clearly. And as I said in my article, there are some crimes that will consider extenuating circumstances. There are some crimes that, that I think will the error being made yeah. here is you're thinking it's going to be preventative. You can legislate all you want, but all you're legislating is what you can do to the guy after he's but, already but committed the crime. It has to be preventative, well, or none of our laws are worth yeah. anything. But How many I, criminals who do home invasions read the papers every day and check the latest legislation? Oh, let's see, what's that crime Well, I think today? the word would get I mean, around pretty well, fast. I, yeah. well, I, I agree with you. I started by agreeing with you, saying I think that in a genuine home 
invasion, a randomly chosen home invasion with violence, that, that it should be different and should be treated more se seriously because I think people need to feel secure in their homes. I, I think that's right. Um, so I think that's one of the things you do, although I'm still fascinated by the whole thing about I don't. Health. I don't get the distinction. If I don't know you and do something to you, that's worse than if it's I scary. know you and do something it's to you. It's scarier to people to well, think that somebody random might come after them than somebody they know. Because I think it's scarier to think somebody who, who you know is coming you know, after you. How do you like you, a, the you idea of your wife your doing you in the morning? <laughs> it's, it's an issue. People, people feel unsettled when they feel out of control. When they feel that they're in control, they, they have some control over their destiny, that they can deal with that. So you can choose, you know, uh, such and such is gone bad he's out of my life. He's not coming in. I'm not going to open the door under any circumstances or whatever. You, you have some control over your friends and your family and where you let them in and all that kind of stuff. But the idea that somebody with a gun is just going to bust down your front door that you have no control over, I think, is most scary for people, especially vulnerable people, seniors, uh, single moms at home, and so on. Uh, and I, I think it's appropriate for the government to send out a message, look, we will look after you in those cases. Well, we'll do a bunch of things, but this is one of them. Should we treat a police invasion of a home when they go looking for drugs and shoot somebody's dog as a, as a home invasion? No. When and they don't nor, announce nor themselves. Nor do we think burglary <laughs> home invasion, which you know, is also I find that terrifying, the idea that they can do that. That, to me, terrifies me more than any idea of a private home invasion. Boys, the uh, band's playing in the background. Yeah. That means we're out of time. My thanks to Bob Metz and Jeff Schlemmer for joining us. I uh, look forward to seeing you again next week. Thanks, Jim. And uh, we hope you'll join us again next week. If you've enjoyed this presentation, visit justrightmedia.org for more programming that's not right-wing. It's just right.